from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the, of the clan of Elimelech. Hear the word of the Lord. During World War II, in the Pacific theater of the war, much of the fighting centered around islands and taking back the territory the Japanese had won over. Islands with names like Tarawa, Guam, Okinawa, and Iwo Jima became commonplace in the news articles about the war. In between these battles and training for new battles, U.S. troops had what they called downtime or liberty. And they had this liberty usually in the areas where they were stationed. As human nature would have it, near these bases where they had liberty and where they were training were places where men could pursue ungodly means of entertainment with the free flow of alcohol at bars and with women at places mistakenly called comfort houses. They were sinful places and many young American soldiers were tempted by the influence that they had on the troops. One young American lieutenant was greatly upset when he saw his fellow soldiers spared injury or even death in battle heading to these places at night. So born of the Biblical upbreeding, his Methodist minister father and godly mother had instilled in him, as well as the background that he had as a drill sergeant from Paris Island and that fortitude, he went about determined for the souls of the men as well as for the young girls, often forced into this line of work. At night when his men would go to the comfort houses and the bars, so did this marine lieutenant attempting to convince them to pursue better uses of their liberty and to consider their relationship with their creator, God. But beyond his own fellow soldiers, this lieutenant became increasingly vocal with the young women as well as their employers, encouraged them to stop their duties there and to find a different way of life. This nightly ritual continued for a while, but it came to a head when the Marine Lieutenant was approached by the military police from his base, who had discovered that the local owners of these establishments weren't thrilled with what he was doing and had threatened harm to this soldier for the loss of business and for the women who were seeing their trade impacted. So he was forced to stop his nightly rituals, but that didn't stop him from exhorting men to properly view women in God's eyes and to see the wonderful creation of woman respected, and treated with dignity and honor. And throughout the 50 years that I knew this man as my father, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Henderson, I never knew him to be anything but a godly man to the women he encountered in every facet of his life, especially my mother and my sister. My father, though not a perfect man, showed many of the qualities that we will be discussing in Ruth chapter 2 today. As he was generous to a fault to those in need, kind and tender-hearted to those in difficulty, 
and aware of God's providence in his life as well as in his death. Last week, Daniel introduced us to the book of Ruth, a four-chapter, four-act narrative set among Israel's history when judges ruled the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're introduced to a Jewish family, Elimelech the father, Naomi his wife, and sons Malon and Kilion. It begins as a drama as a father foolishly decides to sojourn in the land of Moab while Israel is under a drought as a result of God's judgment on Israel. He sojourns in this land of Moab and during this time, this drama becomes almost a catastrophe. With the deaths of Elimelech, the marriage of his two sons to Moabite women, and then the deaths of both of his other sons, Malon and Kilion. So 10 years after abandoning the promised land, only Naomi is left with her two Moabite daughters, Orpah and Ruth, in desperate circumstances. This story turns when Naomi hears that God has visited his people and the famine in Israel is over. Naomi determines to return to her homeland and charges her two daughters to return to their mother's house where she prays they will find other husbands. Orpah heeds Naomi's words and returns, but Ruth is determined to accompany Naomi and to serve the God Yahweh. She exclaims in Ruth 1, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, where the return is bittersweet for Naomi as she sees that the Lord has dealt bitterly with her and brought calamity on her, and that her name is no longer Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, but is now Mara, which means bitter. She comments that she went away full, but the Lord has returned her empty. She's encountering, as Daniel said last week, a failure of future grace. But they've returned just in time for the barley harvest which appears to be plentiful and abundant. But as chapter 2 begins, this unlikely couple are facing the following problems. Number one, food and provisions. Number two, no heir for the family of Elimelech to continue first his name, but also to claim rights to his property. And number three, no prospects for Ruth, now an alien sojourner herself in a foreign land. Today we'll be introduced to the final character in the book of Ruth. In chapter 2, we're introduced to a man who's described as worthy, who ironically was the son of a woman who would have worked the comfort houses of Jericho. We'll continue the story of the Moabite widow, Ruth, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, as they return to Bethlehem from their sojourn. We'll see throughout the chapter, as well as the whole book of Ruth, the quiet but ever-moving providence of God as his purposes and plans are worked out amongst the characters in this beautiful narrative. And solutions begin to emerge for the problems facing the two widowed women. These interactions and their stories will lead to our three points this morning. Number one, gleaning in the life of the believer, verses two through seven. 
hesed in the life of the believer, verses 8 through 17. And finally, providence in the life of the believer, verses 17 through 23. Last summer, my wife and I took a trip to Colorado to visit our daughter. And on that way, she knew that we were going to be doing the women's Bible study in the book of Ruth. But unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that the, the church actually was going to be teaching on Ruth. But we listened to a lot on Ruth. And I really meditate a lot on that. And was really struck by a lot of things that ministered to me in it. And as I got ready to, you know, preach today, the word really came to me that I earnestly desire to bring God's word to you today. And, and Cindy was kind enough this morning to give me just a beautiful um, book of prayers that as we get ready to start, I want to pray this, that the Lord would hear this prayer and honor us this morning as I humbly bring God's word. Let us pray. I am desired to preach today, but to go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long that people might be edified with the divine truth, that an honest testimony might be born for thee. Give me assistance in preaching and prayer, with heart uplifted for grace and unction. Present to my view things pertinent to my subject, with fullness of matter and clarity of thought. Proper expressions, fluency, fervency, a feeling sense of the things I preach, and grace to apply them to men's conscience. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The first lines of chapter 2 interrupt the flow of the narrative by introducing in an unusual way the final character in the book of Ruth. Why is it unusual? It's because in a couple of verses we're going to be reintroduced to him. So in three verses we hear about this man Boaz. So we need to recognize pretty quickly he's important. And Boaz is described as a worthy man. And one who is going to be ultimately used by God to address the three overshadowing problems that were facing Ruth and Naomi. Boaz is introduced as a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, of the same tribe, Judah, and of the same clan. So they're close relatives, and this is important. Boaz is described as a worthy man, which would have meant he had wealth and material substance and land, but also he was a social leader of Bethlehem, and one respected in the community and a godly man. Unlike his relative Elimelech, who had chosen an ungodly escape to Moab during the drought. Boaz means in the strength of Yahweh. And one of the pillars in his great-great-grandson's temple that was built by Solomon is named Boaz in his honor in the temple in Jerusalem. So let's begin with our first point, gleaning in the life of a believer. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Ruth in chapter 2, in verse 2, takes the initiative to solve one of the ongoing questions of food by asking her mother-in-law, Naomi, permission to glean in the fields. Gleaning was God's provision for the disadvantaged and the poor to provide food for them. In Leviticus 19.9 is where we first see this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. For this practice of God's provision to be successful, you needed two parties working in concert. One, such as Ruth, who showed great initiative and courage as she could not be assured of her safety as a single Moabite woman in a foreign land. You'll hear about this a couple times from people warning her in this chapter. Ruth also shows a humble attitude in asking permission to glean in the field and not presuming this would be allowed in the field that she chooses. But along with one willing to go and glean after the harvesters, you equally needed another party, the landowner such as Boaz, to offer up his field to the poor. The provision of God would only work if a landowner was willing, and Boaz shows his obedience and faithfulness to God's word by opening up his field and welcoming the reapers. We also see his godly character in how he addresses the reapers when he shows up in the field. He says, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. This shows a godly relationship between his workers and the landowner. The idea of gleaning for food runs throughout chapter 2, showing up over 11 times and is mentioned by all of the characters in various texts and forms. But how are we to understand the biblical concept of gleaning today? We don't typically go out into the field and glean and get food in that capacity. But we do you know, have a provision for God to help us to bless others. And God's provision to help the destitute and needy today through gleaning for food in the Old Testament can be equated to what we see in the New Testament in caring for the poor. Jesus said we would always have the poor with us. And in Matthew 25, 35, we get an idea of how we should respond to those in need. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Many of us, thankfully, will never be physically hungry 
or in such desperate circumstances such as Naomi and Ruth found themselves in. But with our excess, we should be looking for practical ways to be faithful to God's provision for the poor through our generosity toward those in our community. Within our church, we have a number of opportunities to help. We have Safe Families that offers practical ways that you can minister to those in need. We have the school at Agua Viva in Guatemala that's transitioned from an orphanage to now a school. And because of COVID and because of that transition, some of their you know, giving is down. But we also have a local food bank where one of our own, Ray Mulligan, volunteers in the distribution of food to the needy. As we consider effective ways to minister to those in need, it is very important for us to reflect on how we actually were just like Ruth in another more important aspect of her life. And that is, as a Moabite, she was spiritually impoverished and malnourished, living in a land that worshipped you know, pagan gods and did not know Yahweh. And we were all Moabites, spiritually dead in our sin separated from God with no hope of reconciliation. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 explains our condition and what Christ has done for us. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the Christ, thereby killing the hostility. When Ruth exclaimed, your people have become my people and your God my God, she's witnessing to the spiritual transformation that has occurred in her life. The food of the barley fields can only go so far compared to the life-changing bread of life from God. The greater bread we need is Jesus, the bread of life. In John chapter 6, Jesus addresses the crowds after he has fed 5,000 and taken care of their needs, but they continue to pursue him, not for the life-changing transformation of what he can bring for them as their Savior and eternal life, but for more food. They're stuck on the result of the miracle, food, and not on the person, Jesus, the Son of God. Food is important, yes. Our bodies need it, and we obviously want to give it and help people with it. But there's a more important food that Jesus wants us to look for. And that is that, you know, the bread of life is something we can eat of and always be satisfied forever. Real bread will perish But the greater bread, Jesus, will never perish and leads to eternal life for those that believe in him. We see this in John 6, 33, 35, and John 6, 51. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread, always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
So continue, church, in the wonderful opportunities you do to help in practical ways for those in need. But also, as you're sharing practically, always keep in mind that we want to share the true bread of life, Jesus Christ. Titus 3, 4 through 8 sums up what's occurred in our lives, that through grace we are saved. Not by the works that we do, which are important, but they come after our change in our spiritual position with God. In Titus 3, 4 through 8 it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This saying, as so being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to in- insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Keep sharing of your means. Keep sharing Jesus. As we minister to those around us, as the Holy Spirit brings opportunity, the Bible encourages us, exhorts us to conduct ourselves with a spirit of hesed, or loving kindness, which is the subject of our second point. Hesed in the life of a believer. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother, and your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Hesed is a Hebrew word that that we see throughout this chapter, but also throughout the Old Testament. We see it in this um, book, um, in chapter 1, where Naomi is giving a blessing to Orpah and Ruth. We see it again here um, when Naomi, um, has, uh, when Ruth is telling um, Boaz that she's thankful for how he has shown loving kindness to her. We will see it later in this chapter when Naomi does reflect upon how Boaz has treated Naomi kindly, but it's a, it's a word that is very important for us to understand, and our section here is a very vivid picture of this in action. Hesed is a theological theme in the Old Testament, but there's not an exact English word to translate it, 
So it's usually translated with a, more, a multitude of words or a variety of words, sometimes used in conjunction with one another. Words such as kindness, faithfulness, goodness, compassionate service, loyalty, and steadfast love. The closest word combination to describe hesed would probably be steadfast, loyal love. Hesed describes not just the emotional feelings one might have for someone, but the acts of service and care that one walks out with that person. Hesed also runs vertically from God to man and horizontally from man to man. In the barley fields outside of Bethlehem, we see this hesed flowing from Boaz as he encourages a young widow and from Ruth, who's working to help her mother-in-law. This exchange between Boaz and Ruth is probably the first time in days or even months when Ruth has felt cared for by someone in a true hesed, following the loss of her husband. Hesed is first mentioned in Exodus 34, 6, when Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai as he brings replacement tablets to the mountaintop to renew the covenant and the Ten Commandments on the stones. He's returning to the mountaintop because the first tablets were destroyed as Moses came down the mountain and encountered the people of God worshiping a golden calf that Aaron has fashioned. So here is the Lord's response to Moses in Exodus 34 as he's returning to get the Ten Commandments. The Lord passed before and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generations. It's important to see here the phrase steadfast love, which is hesed, twice spoken in this passage as God is showing his hesed to a stiff-necked people that have continually sinned against him and broken his laws. Loving kindness is found throughout the first two chapters in Ruth, as I mentioned. And as you see, it's important for us in this reaction that Boaz has an interaction, we hear a kind of kindness and a compassion in his voice as he calls her his daughter. He gives her kind and gentle instructions. Do not glean elsewhere. Do not leave this field. Keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field they are reaping and go after them. My men have been instructed not to touch you. Drink when thirsty from the vessels the young men have drawn water from. These directives and the tone rendered by Boaz cause Ruth to respond with humility. As she falls on her face and remarks and says, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm of a foreigner? Boaz's answer shows us that not only has he been a giver of hesed, but so has Ruth. The next line spoken by Boaz is one of the most beautiful in this narrative. As he prays to the Lord to repay Ruth for all that she has done, a full reward to be given to her as he describes the place of refuge under the wings of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel that Ruth has been found. What a most, most touching and intimate picture of Ruth's positional relationship with God and one that as fellow believers we can also embrace as our loving Savior Jesus Christ welcomes us into his place of refuge a place of safety. 
when we are called out of our sinful life to be under the wings of refuge and protection of the Lord. Ruth responds to this exchange with another surprise response as she is amazed that she has found favor in his eyes. Boaz has comforted her and spoken kindly, Hesed, to her, although she is not one of his servants. Boaz also continues to operate in a way that is beyond a typical gleaning um, landowner relationship when he invites her to come and eat with the workers, telling his workers not to reproach her, to pull you know, out some of the harvest already reaped, and to let her glean from this as well. The writer of Ruth always is showing us examples of loving kindness. Hesed, as we should be walking in this conduct, is something in our daily life with family, friends, co-workers, and even unbelievers. We're, we're to show this to others because this kind of kindness and gentleness because what Christ has done for us, what he has shown for us. Ephesians 4.32 is a, is a life verse for me and how I desire to conduct myself and how I desire to communicate with people, especially in work. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, that all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is a great example of a Holy Spirit life that we are to walk in believers. The practice of working in a life of hesed brings glory to God. As powerful as these acts of kindness are in our life as a believer, it's very contrary to our nature, but they also show us and point us to the greater act of hesed the ultimate act of hesed in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the promise of a Messiah and the Old Testament covenants ushered in a new covenant with the shedding of his blood, his death, and resurrection. From the Old Testament covenants of Noah, Abraham, Moses, and to David, God has been establishing covenants with his people and his people are continually breaking these covenants. Hesed and its complete fulfillment is what Christ accomplished on Calvary through God's steadfast love to restore his people to him and to usher in a new covenant whereas all the covenant's promises are realized in and through Jesus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, the greatest act of hesed. And whatever the cost to God, Whatever the cost to himself, even the death of his only begotten son, whom God poured out his wrath upon our sin, upon his sinless son, our filthy rags for Christ's righteousness imparted to us as Christ died in our place. And through his death and resurrection, we should be and are empowered by the Holy Spirit working in us to live a life of hesed and kindness to others. With our spiritually impoverished lives, changed by our most loving Savior, we should stop and consider the providence of God in our life 
in the life of a believer, which is our last point. Recognizing God's providence in the life of the believer. So Ruth gleaned in the field unto evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was an ephah, a barley. And she took it and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over from, after being satisfied from her lunch. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, has said again, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they are finished all of my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now we want to consider the aspect of God's providence. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? This is in the Catechism number 27. The answer is, the almighty and ever-present power of God whereby he still upholds, as it were, by his own hand, heaven and earth together with all creatures and rules in such a way that leaves and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come to us not by chance, but by his Father's hand. Let's reflect upon that last line again. Everything else that he's mentioned comes to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God is ever moving in our lives to fulfill them to the purposes and plans he has determined. And nothing can separate us from his plan in our life or in the eternal life to come. There's no luck. There are no accidents. Remove those words from your lexicon. They shouldn't be used. We see direct elements of God's providence this, in this whole book, but in these chapters especially. And in the beginning of the, you know, the book, when the drought comes to Israel, the drought leads to a famine, which leads to Elimelech going to Bethlehem. But then we see the Lord visiting Israel and the famine is over. Also in the nature of work, as Ruth goes into the field to glean, then beats out the grain to keep for her and Naomi. Throughout this narrative, we see the providence of God moving silently as his hidden hand is involved in all aspects of this story. Ruth is not like Daniel, a book full of dramatic miracles and appearances of God, but we see God as he visited his people in verse 6 of chapter 1, and then again in chapter 4, verse 13, when it says, The Lord gives conception to Ruth. But God is ever moving in the lives of these characters. Even these who you would never expect to be considered or a part of the lineage of King David. And ultimately, 
Jesus Christ. And they point to the reality of Gentiles becoming a part of God's kingdom. Boaz is the son of Rahab, the prostitute of the comfort houses of Jericho. She helped the Israelites when they were spying out the promised land in the city of Jericho, so they spared her and their family's life. And she's in the lineage of David and ultimately Jesus and Ruth, you know, a Moabite, widowed woman from Moab. Do you pick that up how many times we are told she's from Moabite woman from Moab? That's pretty clear how important it is that Gentiles now are part of God's kingdom and also in the lineage of King David and also King Jesus. So let's reflect upon some of the places we can observe God's providence in Ruth. We see it in the drought, the famine, but here are a couple places that really struck out if you want to consider. When Ruth gets ready to glean, she picks the field that Boaz owns. That's not my coincidence. That's God's providence. And then Boaz, on that day, decides to come at the same time that Ruth is in that field gleaning. Also, we start to see, and this is important, in Naomi's life, she's starting to see that all the things that have happened to her life are God's providence, and she's seeing and beginning to see future faith and how God is moving to answer some of her dire circumstances. When Ruth returns to Naomi, there's a dramatic interaction between these two women. So they start to see God's providence in their life because of things that are just so obvious. The amount of food that Ruth brings home is amazing. You, know, you get a lot of variations on it, but it wasn't like a little you know, bagel. It's pounds. Some people say as much as 30, 35 pounds that Ruth is carrying home. So now we know that they're you know, assured of continued provision because Ruth has brought home this large amount of, of gleaned barley and broken down now that they can eat. But she's also told she can stay in the fields through the barley and the wheat harvest, a period of months. Now Naomi starts to see how Boaz could be instrumental in the answers of the other two questions that are still lingering from chapter 1. Who can be an heir to Elimelech's name and rights to his property? Because without a male heir, the name or his property cannot be transferred. And also, where is a Moabite widow woman exiled in, in Israel going to find a prospective husband? She exclaims, this is Naomi, Blessed is the man that took notice, and blessed is the man whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi's faith has been bolstered as she's starting to experience God's kindness toward her and Ruth. She begins to consider that maybe one of God's acts of providence in their life is the Old Testament concept of a kinsman redeemer who will be used to accomplish God's plans for them both. Naomi sees God's providence in Ruth meeting Boaz at that particular field on that particular day and remarks, that man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. From this exchange, we can see that Boaz is possibly going to be one of those answers to those questions. But what is a kinsman redeemer? 
And who was that that you know, Naomi is thinking about in this, in this regard? A kinsman redeemer was son, a relative that would deliver a fellow kin from the tribe and clan from difficult circumstances, redeeming them from danger or financial ruin. In Israel, the kinsman redeemer had four obligations and responsibilities. Number one, when one of his kin was in financial difficulty, the kinsman redeemer was to buy him out of the debt that had led to his bondage or possibly indentured slavery. Number two, if a relative had sold off his inheritance or land, the kinsman redeemer had an obligation to buy back that land that his relative had sold. Number three, he was to perform the leveret law of marrying a widow in the family who had no male heirs and to produce a descendant for the dead husband. In Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, that's explained in more detail, but the custom was that if an Israelite husband died without a male child, his land, his name, could not be transferred, so it was essential for them to have a male heir. So the brother or the near relative would marry the widow to produce that male child to allow for those two things to occur. The name, you know, moving on, and the inheritance and their land. And finally, the fourth thing a kinsman and redeemer would do was to avenge the death of a relative. Naomi sees that Boaz could be this kinsman and redeemer. And in the next two chapters, not to give too much away, but this will play out with this as a background. As we conclude this final point, we do need to look, as Mike mentioned earlier, to the ultimate kinsman redeemer, a redeemer greater than Boaz. Jesus Christ, who fulfilled these very duties as his kinsman redeemer as the son of God. Number one, Jesus has freed us from the bondage of sin and slavery to our carnal natures. Number two, Jesus has claimed for us, in us, an inheritance for his people. Jesus has raised up a seed in his name. And number four, Jesus will be the avenger of blood. There is no greater providence, church, in anyone's life than the purpose and plan that God has had for you since before creation to call you out of your sinful life and establish you as one of his own children of God, and heirs of eternal life. And Jesus, as our kinsman redeemer, fulfills these through the blood and sets us free from sin. John Flavel has a great quote from his book, The Mystery of Providence. Because if you don't see in your life how God has been moving, even with his hidden hand in small things, it's important to sit and reflect upon it. And Flavel's quote is really good. You may look upon some providences once and again and see little or nothing in them. But look seven times. That is, meditate often upon them. And you will see their increasing glory like that increasing cloud. That's from 1 Kings 18.44. Read that story and get an idea of how God's providence is increasing in all of our lives. When I was 14 years old, during a sports physical, the doctor looked at my mom and I and said, you know, that murmur in his heart is still there and probably needs further test. 
For an outwardly healthy and pretty athletic young man, used to playing basketball, running track, and riding motorcycles, it sounded sounded rather ominous. But I was a young believer, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So I didn't think much about it. But after the tests were done, and the most fun part of that was they run a tube up your heart called a cardiac catheterization just to look at your heart and determine what's going on. They came in and said, well you know, you probably need to have surgery because you've got a hole in your heart the size of a grape. And it's in your septal wall, not to get too medically involved, but that means you're oxygen-rich and your oxygen-poor blood's mixing. So they got to sew it up with cat gut, fix it. But they gave me nine months after the school year to do that. So let's fast forward eight and a half months and two weeks before my surgery My father drops a bomb on us by coming in and having a family meeting, which we didn't have many of. He calls my sister and I and mom. I'm sure mom knew about this. And he says, my job is moving us four hours away. I grew up in High Point, North Carolina, which is High Point, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, Triad area. We're moving to Wilmington four hours away. Well, the first thing that really struck me was I've spent the last nine years with the same classmates, same friends, And now I'm getting ready to go to High Point Central. I've been asked to be on the debate team. I've been asked to be on the marching band, even the stage band, which was a band that was special, and we traveled and did performances and all sorts of stuff. It's really an honor to be picked for that. I had planned to do a lot of math courses and take advanced advanced math. I had planned to go to NC State after my three years at Central and be an architect. But more importantly, in the spiritual realm, A lot of my friends and those classmates had also become believers with me and had also been filled with the Holy Spirit. My neighborhood, we had prayer meetings. We were laying hands on people and they were being filled with the Holy Spirit. We were doing Bible studies and now I'm moving four hours away from that part of my life. Maybe my dad just picked the right time to tell me because with my surgery two weeks away, I wasn't as concerned about what topics the debate team was going to be doing the next year or what songs the stage band was going to have because they were getting ready to cut my my sternum in half. So as you see, the surgery went well. (laughs) I'm here today. And a few months later, we had moved to Wilmington and I was going to my new school. I'm excited, I'm meeting with the principal, I'm telling him all the stuff I've been involved with, you know, band, debate, you know, this and that, I'm all excited, here are my transcripts, I'm a pretty good student, I'm all excited about it, and he listens to me and he looks at me real kindly and he says, you know, Chip, you know, we don't have a debate team, we don't have a marching band, we don't have a stage band, we don't have any band, you know, we're, we're a small school, um, and, and your, your math classes are, are all out of kilter with our schedule. You're going to have to do this independent study. He said, I know this is a disappointment, but we don't really have a whole lot for you. But he said, I, I see that your dad owned an advertising agency, and that's why you're moving from High Point to Wilmington. Our school photographer just left. We have no idea what to do with this camera. Would you give it a try? That's 50 years ago this month that God in his providence 
decided in a career I had never considered as a young believer that God had plans for me to bring joy and to serve clients through the gift of photography that would glorify and honor the God of all creation when I did that. And as I wrap up our time in Ruth chapter 2, consider another John Flavel quote. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. My story is not unique, church. I would encourage everyone to take some time this week to consider how God has moved in your life, whether you be young or old. Write a list. Return to it often with thanksgiving and prayer. This is one of my lists. The date at the top is 1995. I've listed the miracles and things God has done in my life in his providence. Don't forget. Finally, in conclusion... Are there characters in this chapter whose status and situation you can identify with? As I read these questions, would you reflect on them and ask God, are there areas that you want to change in or be more like? Or maybe discuss them over lunch with someone that knows you well. I've discussed a few with Cindy already. I've gotten some good answers. And if you need prayer to address them, the prayer team will be up front as they are each Sunday. So consider, as Ruth, are you courageous to help others in need when the opportunity arises? Or does fear of man and fear of failure inhibit your desire to reach out? Number two, do you have a humble spirit to seek out ways to serve and listen to directions? Ruth had an incredible humble spirit about her, especially when, when Boaz was giving her instructions in the field. She's listening, and she to, you know, probably fulfilled and listened. Are you willing to listen to instructions sometimes and directions? Number three, are you finding time to find refuge under the wings of God and just rest? I won't mention this is one that my wife mentioned to me, you know, do you find time just to sit with God? Or do you fill every moment of every day with the new Netflix series or the new this or that or trips to the gym? Do you find time just to sit with God? Consider Naomi. Have you been able to allow those to serve you when you've needed help or you're resistant to it or you think you have it all under control? We have a church that loves to help people. If you need help, reach out. Number two, do you need a Ruth to walk with you during these most difficult times? Once again, don't walk it alone. Number three, are you struggling to understand God's providence in your life and, and in a difficult, dark place and need people to pray for you? As I'm finishing up with Boaz, the worship team can come up. Consider Boaz. Be a little harder on Boaz because I'm a man, okay? But we could see parts or aspects of all of these. Are you using your talents and resources for the benefit of others in your life as Boaz did? Or 
Are you harvesting right up to the edge of that field and leaving little time for others or means to help? Number two, are you kind in spirit, has said, and eager to, eager to exclaim, the Lord bless you and the Lord be with you? Number three, are you aware of God's example over 2,000 years ago to eliminate, sexual, to eliminate sexual harassment in your workplace, in your public areas at home? Are you a man like Boaz and his care and approach to women? How many times do we have to see in this book the fear that these women you know, could have been under from assault or words spoken? Remember, it was a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. Be a Boaz man and how you, you know, conduct yourself around women. Number four, are you open to a radical change of direction in your life? Boaz's world, not to give away too much, is getting ready to change for the better, but in a dramatic way. And I don't care, you know, how old you are today. You know, in this room, you know, we could have Boaz's life who's getting ready to change. You know, we don't know that there might be you know, another R.C. Sproul in this room, you know, Jerry Bridgers in this room, you know, a Christian godly Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, you know, and it doesn't matter at what age you are. Are you ready for a dramatic change in your life and open to what the Holy Spirit may lead you to do? However you consider these questions, we serve a God whose providence is ever moving to fulfill the purposes and plans for you. We sang earlier, we do not know what the future brings, but God does. We need future faith and our greater Boaz, Jesus. Let's remember that Jesus is that greater Boaz who comes to us and asks that when we are thirsty, he is the living water that will never run dry and lead to eternal life. Jesus also asks us to take the bread and drink the wine that reminds us of his body and blood that was broken for our sins and provides for us a place of refuge where under his wings we can find rest. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much today for the act of hesed you enacted for us, sending your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. Lord, and for the transformation that has occurred in all believers' lives in this room, we pray today, Lord God, that you will empower us by the Holy Spirit to live lives that will be generous, will be loving, and will be aware of how you are working in our lives to fulfill your purposes and plans. We thank you for all you've done for us. We give you glory and honor and praise. Amen.